Good morning, everybody. Make sure this is on. If you uh, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 4, Hebrews chapter 4, if you're using the, hymn, uh, the Bible there in the pew, it's 171, page 171 in your New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4. The title for today's today's sermon is Help for the Weary Traveler. Help for the Weary Traveler. It is uh, really a blessing to be able to open God's Word uh, with all of you today. I first met Pastor Elwert while I was in seminary at Detroit Baptist. And uh, at that time, I was really impressed uh, with his seriousness as a student, but also his dedication to his, his calling as a pastor. And so it's really great to be here today and see how God is. Uh, working in Royal Oak through you all and in this surrounding area as well. A bit about myself. I'm here with my wife, Lisa. We've been married for about six years now. Uh, And our son, David, who's three years old, he's downstairs in the nursery, hopefully not making uh, your nursery workers regret their calling. I'm currently on staff at Community Bible Church in Trenton, um, serving as the assistant to the pastor. We've been there just over a year now. We are hoping one day in the future to engage in church planting ministry, uh, Lord willing. Finally, I should say that if this is your first time at Ambassador, welcome. And rest assured that Pastor Elwert is planning on being back next week. So don't let my message keep you from returning. Now let's ask God for his assistance as we seek to open his word and see what he has for us today. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and uh, for the opportunity to gather together freely in our country and to worship you openly. We pray and confess our our dependence on you, and so ask that your spirit would give our ears, uh, open our ears, and quiet our hearts, that we may focus on what you have for us this day. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I enjoy uh, whitewater kayaking. It's something I used to like to do a lot, but uh, I haven't don't get to do it as much as I like to anymore. I still get out about a few times a year, though. Recently, I was talking with another paddler on the river about the fact that sometimes when you're sitting above a rapid, uh, whitewater rapid, it doesn't look too serious. You know, you're looking at it, you may be sitting on the bank looking at the whitewater, and you're thinking, ah, you know, that doesn't look too serious. I think that's not going to be any problem to get through. But then you get up close, and you're sitting right above the rapid, or you're sitting right next to it, and you're thinking, wow, that, that rapid looks really big, or that waterfall looks really, really serious. Uh, and, you know, you, fear starts kicking in. You start getting the butterflies in your stomach. And I've been on trips where you've had to actually calm people down. You know, you're telling someone on the, above the rapid, you know, don't worry about it. I know it looks really scary. Uh, I know, you know, there's a lot of noise, a lot of water bouncing around. But I, I know you have the skill to get down this rapid. I've seen you on the river. You know, just trust your skill, follow me down, and let's do this. We see this in other areas of life as well. You hear parents sometimes telling their kids, reassuring their kids, uh, and sometimes telling them things like, you know, you can grow up and be president if you want, right? And you may be thinking, if you hear something like that, like, mm, I don't know, maybe, maybe that presidency is not for you, but, uh, you know. That assurance, though, they're actually... Uh, in that case, 
in the case of telling your child that they can grow up and be president when maybe they really you know, don't at this point possess that, those skills is more wishful thinking. They're not really based on any kind of facts. So the difference between those two examples is on one hand, you're encouraging somebody based on something factual. That is, you know that they have the skills to maneuver down this river safely. And on the other case, you know, you're just hoping that they actually do something with their life. But you're not really basing that on any kind of fact at this point. When we put our hope in something, we want to be sure. We want to be trust that whatever we're putting our hope in is trustworthy. Something more than just wishful thinking. The book of Hebrews, the book we're looking at today, seeks to remind us that we can have uh, what we can actually have confidence in. You see, those original readers were on a path one they were quickly discovering was not exactly what they had envisioned. This original audience of believers had a strong understanding of the Jewish religious system. This group of Christians didn't have the resources that we have today. They didn't have all the commentaries, the Christian blogs, the websites uh, that we have like uh, today. They were only a generation or two removed from the first believers, the apostles in the book of Acts. But what they did have were the Old Testament scriptures and a loving and caring pastor. And this pastor, the writer of the book we're looking at today, deeply cared deeply for them. His love for them drove him to write down this sermon, the letter we now call the book of Hebrews, because he wanted to make sure that they would finish the course that they had set out on. You see, he was concerned that they were getting discouraged or perhaps they were beginning to look back on their old lives because of present difficulties. And by looking backward, they would potentially wander from their Christian faith. This temptation to wander wasn't because they were looking for something new and exciting, but it was the combined result of being pressured on the for outward, ungodly culture that they lived in and an inner temptation to wander from the Christian faith because of the difficulties that they encountered. So because of that, he was burdened for them to recognize that the Christian faith, and in particular the person of Jesus Christ, was far superior to anything that they could turn back to. But since he was their pastor and he cared and he did deeply care for them, he was also planned to give them some hard truths uh, for them about their lives. Turning away from Christ to their previous manner of life was not only turning to something deeply inferior. It was, in a very real sense, a one-way trip if they were to go back. The author tells them in chapter 10, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. So his goal by warning them in mind today is not, not to scare a person into thinking that they may be lost, but rather to keep them focused on what lies ahead. Turning back is not an option. Pressing forward is the only way. We don't have to struggle with discouragement. God has already provided what we need. And this takes us now to the verses we'll be considering today, Hebrews 4:14 through 16. Starting at verse 14, 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These verses capture the heart of the letter of the Hebrews. Our author at once lays the foundation of their faith, the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says that they and we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Our high priest identifies with us and is in a place where he can help. He comforts us on this difficult road. So in light of that, he gives two commands. Hold firmly to your faith, grasp and, excuse me, hold firmly to your faith, grasping tightly those things you have confessed about Christ. And secondly, have confidence to approach the throne of grace. And we need God's grace because of the struggles we have, both inward and outward. And this is the pattern of much of the letter. We're given a great truth about Jesus, warned and then about turning about, excuse me, turning from Christ, and then encouraged to act on that truth. So the message that Jesus brings is better than we are given before. So listen to it. Jesus' faithfulness is unparalleled in the Bible, so don't harden your heart against his message. The priesthood of Jesus is of a greater magnitude than any other, so draw near and don't fall away. And so let's flesh out this section together and see what God has to say to us. If you're taking notes, the first point is the road of life is difficult. The road of life is difficult. It doesn't take long for us to realize that life is hard. I sometimes joke with my three-year-old, you know, he's maybe watching a video for like the sixth time in a row, and he wants to keep watching. And I say, no, you can't, you can't keep watching this video. You know, life is, ta- life is hard. You know, you can't keep watching this video. I'm trying to lighten the mood for him. And of course, in that situation, I'm just trying to make light of what's going on. But the statement res- resonates for most of us because life is hard. Sometimes it's the little things. The washing machine breaks down at the worst time. You know, we round off a bolt. If you've been working on a car, you round off a rusty bolt. The diaper leaks at exactly the worst time. But sometimes it's bigger issues. We visit the doctor because of one issue and find out we have something worse going on. Maybe it's the breakup of a marriage. Maybe life is truly difficult right now because we just lost a job. The company downsized. We lost the contract and now they realize my position with the company is no longer needed. And now we're facing the crush of all those bills coming due. Or maybe it's just a difficulty because of a decision we've made in life in light of circumstances. Maybe you decided, I'm going to drop out of school, I'm not going to finish college because I have too much going on and now that choice is coming back to bite you. The road of life is difficult. And it's precisely at those times we want to give up. We want to throw in the towel. Maybe you have a higher tolerance than most. Maybe you can take more hardships than, men, than others. But at some point, most people will hear that small voice inside them telling them, you know, you should just give up, just quit trying. Life is too difficult right now. Sometimes it's hard because we make it hard. We make bad choices. We make mistakes in judgment. Sometimes we're just too lazy. We don't make any choices. 
But life is hard because of things outside of our control. As I highlighted with the original recipients of this letter, they were struggling largely because of things that were outside of their control. But God does not leave us in our struggles. He does not leave us to figure it out on our own. So now let's take a look at the text and see what he has to say about the road of life. And the first reason we see that the road of life is difficult is because of our frailties. The road of life is difficult because of our frailties. Verse 15 says, For we do not have, excuse me, let me go ahead and read that. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We, read, we tend to read something like that and are tempted to, to read and understand the idea of empathize or sympathize that he says in that verse. Uh, as it, it's a term translated weakness in the same way we would understand having sympathy for a kid who just fell off a bike. Or maybe a soldier who was wounded in combat and has returned from, from the, the field. So then, we, you know, we, weakness is commonly understood and is equated with some kind of physical weakness, some kind of injury. But what the Bible is talking about here, when it mentions our weaknesses in verse 15, is our propensity or our tendency towards sin. And it's not just any sin in general. It's not a general sin, but a specific issue of our tendency towards wandering from God. A sin that manifests, excuse me, manifests itself by drifting away from God. And this is confirmed here by the statement later in verse 15 that our high priest was without sin. As opposed to us, Jesus was focused on obeying and trusting God in all aspects of his life. But it may seem like we're splitting hairs. You may be thinking, can it be both? Can it be we're just weak, physically frail, but we also have this tendency towards sin? Can't we have... Can't we just get sympathy for both of those things? But the answer is tied up with the purpose of the letter. As we discussed uh, earlier, remember the author is concerned that his readers finish the course, press towards their heavenly goal. If they drop out or turn back, it's not because they weren't strong enough. It's not because they weren't equipped properly. It's because they willfully turned away from God. And it's the same for us sitting here today. When we decide that things are too tough, or the circumstances aren't to our liking with regard to the Christian life, and we tap out or we take some time off. We can't blame God for our decision. Perhaps you can remember those good times you had when you lived life as an unbeliever, living carefree, living for yourself, and now as a Christian, life is hard. It isn't always how you would, you would have planned it. It isn't how you would have liked it. And so you begin looking backwards. Or maybe it's not memories of your previous life, but the lives of your non-Christian friends or co-workers or neighbors that's beginning to look appealing. You're doing all you can to follow the Lord faithfully. But the people around you, they're living for today, living for themselves, and they're having what seems like a great time doing it. So we struggle due to our tendency to wander, and we also struggle due to temptations that are all around us. We struggle because of our expectations of what the Christian walk should be don't exactly line up with what God has said in his word. Our propensity towards sin and the opportunities and reminders that are all around us mean we're weak in a biblical sense. So we need compassion. We need help because of our frailties. But we also need help because of where we are. 
We need help because we find ourselves in a sin-affected world. So the second reason that the road of life is difficult is because of our circumstance. The road of life is difficult because of our circumstance. Verse 14 informs us that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. But we can take a look around us this morning, and uh, no offense, you guys look great here in Royal Park, but we realize we're not sitting in heaven with Jesus. We're still sitting here this morning in Royal Oak. He's there, but we're here. Our present circumstances means that we're, just, we're still part of this world. And this is how it, it's supposed to be. Jesus prayed in John 17:15, saying, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus is telling us that his plan for us is to be here, to be part of this world. If we were to turn back to chapter 3 of Hebrews, and you don't have to turn there, the Bible highlights the wrong way to view our circumstances through the example of the wandering Israelites. The Israelites had been enslaved for, a gen- for generations. They yearned for freedom. The nation of Israel grew larger and larger under that slavery, and this caused them, their masters, to despise and fear them. So they worked them hard. The book of Exodus tells us in, in Exodus chapter 1 that the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor. And into this context, God raises up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt and into the rest that God promised them. Hebrews uh, 3, 7 says, As the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years, saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said, Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, They shall never enter my rest. The same people who desired freedom and saw God work miracles in the midst of them were the same ones who, once they hit the desert, began to complain and were bitter about their circumstances. They complained about their situation. They complained about their circumstances. They complained against Moses. And ultimately, they complained against God. God's will for those people was that they enter his rest that he promised them, but it was also that, that they would pass through the desert, this time of testing. They didn't go straight into the promised land. And for Christians today, for those of us sitting here this morning, normally God's will isn't that we go straight to heaven after being saved. We're here in a fallen world, struggling with the everyday stuff of life. We have to go to work, learn to get along with each other, we've got to pay taxes, obey the government, the list goes on. Hebrews 11 reminds us about those saints in the Old Testament, saying, There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Chapter 10 of Hebrews says, Remember those early days after you received the light, when you endured in great conflict, full of suffering, 
Sometimes you were publicly, publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. We live out our lives in a sin-cursed and sin-affected world. And if we just had to deal with those things alone, that might be fine. But we have to deal with all of these difficulties and still face difficulties from others arising from our faith. We try and live out our faith in the workplace, but we are faced with co-workers who don't share our worldview. We sit in college classrooms and want to represent Christ, but are surrounded by a culture that is hostile to the claims of absolute truth that the Bible takes. We try to raise our kids in such a way that they grow up to be God-fearing adults, but we work against schools that are hostile to Christian expressions of faith. In a very real way, there has been a turn in American culture so that anti-Christian behavior and lifestyles are not just tolerated. They're not just tolerated, but they must be celebrated and overtly displayed. And this is very much the world that the original readers of Hebrews faced. They faced very much the same circumstance that we're facing today. So we have a sin problem we need to deal with. We have difficult circumstances all around us that are often outside of our control that we have to deal with. In the first part of this message, I tried to show how we're all weary travelers at one time or another. Now we want to see what kind of help God has provided for his people. So the second main point then is successfully navigating the road of life is all about relationship. It's all about relationship. As I noted in the introduction, the underlying basis for the following command is our great high priest, Jesus. And we need to make sure that we understand why he's so great, particularly as it applies here. The Bible highlights two things about Jesus in this section that we need to understand. First is Jesus as our high priest, and secondly, Jesus, the Son of God. He highlights these things because as our high priest, Jesus identifies with us and can sympathize with our frailties, but he also provides the access we need directly to God. As the Son of God, we are are shown his faithfulness and deity. And so these concepts undergird all the commands that he gives us. They make possible the resources we're given to persevere on the road of life. God wants us to take advantage of the resources he has provided. He doesn't want us to try and accomplish things in our own strength. In a very real way, God wants us to see that success in the Christian life is dependent upon our relationship with him. Success in the Christian life is dependent upon our relationship with him. And the health of that relationship is manifested in two different ways. The first of those ways, we cultivate our relationship with God by remembering those things we were taught. By remembering those things we were taught. So the second half of verse 14 tells us that we must hold fast our confession. We need to hold firmly or grasp tightly or cling to the faith we profess. Thinking back to one of the underlying issues facing this original community, it helps us to see why the author tells his readers and tells us to hold fast to their confession. The original recipients were struggling with spiritual lethargy. He says in 2.1, we must pay attention more, 
more carefully, therefore, to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. He says later in the letter, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. God is telling us we must cling to those things we have learned, those things we were taught, particularly about Christ. Before we look at those things that we were taught and try to understand what exactly those are, we need to be clear why the Bible tells us to hold or cling to them. If you've ever been out west, ever hiked around, I've uh, spent some time out in Utah at some national parks out there when I was younger. If you've ever been out that way you, you've, and hiked around those national parks, all the trails out, out that, in that part of the country are just marked by stacks of stones. So there's no trail, there's no natural trail. It's not like being out in the woods out here where you can kind of follow the trail. Uh, there's, no, there's no dirt, there's no trees, it's just rock. And so the only way you know you're on that trail is by the stack of stones you're following. There are no footprints, no well-worn trails to look for. So if you stop watching, if you stop looking for those stack of stones, you can get off the trail pretty quick and not even know it. The person out in the middle of nowhere must cling to, as it were, those trail markings. And in the same way, when the Bible gives us this warning, we need to listen, or we may be in danger or already be drifting. So for the Christian, that thing that may cause us to drift is our sin. There's no instantaneous victory over sin. We do battle against our sinful desires as long as we're here in this life. The Bible teaches that the sanctification process, or the process that is making us more and more like Jesus Christ daily, is a lifelong one. If we read, were to read Romans 7, and you don't have to turn there, I'll read it. It's Romans 7, 21 through 23. It says, So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. The Bible is testifying to the fact of this inner struggle with the sin nature. In 1 Peter 2:11, we read, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. The struggle against sinful desires is a real one, and it's one that over time can make us weary if we don't have the right view of the battle. When we think we can have success, if we just try harder, we just apply ourselves more, we just want it badly enough, we set ourselves up for failure. The other way in which we view the battle incorrectly is that we fool ourselves into thinking we can actually win the war against sin in this lifetime. As we read, if you were to read Philippians 3.12, it says, Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And so here's the issue. We're going about our life, and we have this particular issue that we struggle with. Imagine, imagine it's anger. We're driving down... 75, someone cuts us off or does something crazy and we get really upset and we do something dumb. We do something sinful in response to that. And we realize we messed up and we think, okay, I've got to get control of that. I've got to stop doing that. But since it's 75, five minutes later, someone cut, does that same thing to you again. Someone cuts you off and does something crazy again. And then it starts all over. That sinful anger crops back up. And because you're thinking incorrectly about how to deal with that sin, 
you get frustrated over your lack of growth. What eventually happens is that you begin to not get so upset with yourself over those outbursts of anger. And so you begin to drift. We drift because the Christian walk is tough and we're not, we're, we're not seeing the growth we thought we would. You begin to think that the people that you're driving on the road with, maybe they have the right idea, driving like a maniac. You know, I need to get somewhere as well. And I'm sick of thinking about the other people on the road. And in particular, thinking about my relationship to God all the time and how my anger is affecting that relationship. And all along the way, you're picking up worldly patterns of thinking and behavior. And when I say worldly, I mean those patterns of behavior that characterize life outside of Christ. And so you drift. And for the author of Hebrews, this drifting leads to spiritual rebellion. Hebrews 3.8 says, quoting the, he is quoting the Old Testament, says, Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The pattern then that we see in the Bible, the pattern that the, what it's telling us right here, is that sin that is not dealt with correctly leads to a hardening of the heart, which ultimately leads to rebellion. Sin that's not dealt with hardens your heart and leads to rebellion. And the problem with rebellion is that it shows or manifests the true nature of a person's heart. And that's why God says in 3.11, they shall never enter my rest. Those Israelites who wandered in the desert manifested that rebellion against Moses, manifested that rebellion against God, showed what was really in their heart. Don't miss the connection, friends. Sin that leads to a hard heart leads to rebellion. And God swears that the rebellious person shall never enter his heavenly rest. Are you hearing me, friends? This is why the Bible says in Hebrews 4.14, let us hold fast to our confession. What the Bible is telling us here in the immediate context is that we must hold tightly to our confession that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. In other words, keep your commitment to Christ in light of your present circumstances. When you were saved, you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. As you reflect on, meditate on those things you learned about Christ, you're going through the renewing of the mind that is mentioned in Romans 12 too. We can get a further glimpse of what is meant by confession if we were to read, uh, like for instance, Mark 1.11, as God the Father speaks from heaven about his Son. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Peter confesses in Matthew 16.16, 16, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Martha confesses to Jesus in John 11.27, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So confessing Christ is to recognize who he is, the Son of God. Since he is the Son of God, who now serves as our great high priest, we have an advocate in heaven who intercedes on our behalf. Holding to our confession means to focus our hearts and our minds on Jesus Christ, to trust him and what he says in his word about us and about our circumstances. We keep ourselves from spiritual drifting by holding fast to our confession of Christ. And the practical reason why we remember our confession, why we're told to focus on Christ, is because of what we read in verse 15, saying, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Christ was tempted in every way. He has been tempted and tested to the same extent as we are, yet he never succumbed to that temptation. He's never failed the test. 
And it's precisely because he never failed that we want him for help when we're tempted. You see, we often think that because Jesus was sinless, he doesn't understand our sin. He doesn't understand our struggle. He's sinless. He's God. He, he doesn't understand what I'm going through with this particular sin. But the Bible is clear here. He was tempted to the same extent as we are. Maybe not the exact type of sin, but definitely to the fullest extent possible. And so he knows what it feels like to, full, to feel the full weight of temptation and to resist it. For us, when we struggle with a particular temptation, at some point we fail. Groups like AA, our Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, are helpful for those struggling with alcohol addiction because when you know the particular struggle, you can relate to that person. Jesus knows our most fundamental struggle because he was victorious and he wants to help. And so success in the Christian life is on one hand dependent upon our, us remembering those things we were taught and on the other half, the other part of the equation is we must communicate with our Father. We must remember those things we were taught and we must communicate with our Father. So we cultivate our relationship with God secondly by communicating with our Father. In verse 16 we read, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. But in order to do that, we have to understand what is meant by this phrase. The, the use of the phrase throne of grace is synonymous with the throne of God. Since true grace only comes from God, the throne of grace is another way of saying the throne where grace is dispensed. So approaching the throne of grace means approaching God's throne. And we, in, we instinctively recognize that to approach God's throne is not meant in a literal fashion. In other words, to go somewhere and physically approach God's throne. When we read these words today, we immediately recognize that it's something we do in a spiritual sense. But, it wasn't, but the image wasn't meant to stop there because when the author mentions the great high priest in verse 14 and then the throne of grace in verse 16, the readers would have been reminded that this place of grace was previously off limits to all but the high priest. Remember I said the original readers, the original audience, had a, a strong understanding of the Jewish faith. But now, because of our great high priest, we have constant uh, filtered access to God. So bringing it together then. What we are being urged to do here is to pro approach God spiritually in prayer because of the access given to us through Christ. We need to, as the Bible says in Philippians 4, not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The Bible is telling us to seek God in prayer, not because it makes us feel good, or because like Dorothy seeking audience with the wizard in the Wizard of Oz, there's a chance that we might be heard. The Bible tells us to seek God in prayer, to seek him with confidence, because God desires that we do so. He wants to hear from us. Prayer demonstrates that you're relying upon God and not yourself for help. And so success in the Christian life is on one hand dependent upon our clinging to our confession of Christ and on the other our constant and confident prayer life to God made possible by Jesus' death on the cross. And so as we wrap up, issue raised here drives us to ask, who do we go to when we're struggling? 
in an ultimate sense, there's really only exist two options. Myself or God. Do I turn to what I think is the way I should go when I struggle? Or am I going to trust God and, and turn to Him? Do I trust that what I think is the answer? Do I deal with the circumstances that I'm facing in my own strength? Do you turn back because it seems easier? Or do we go forward? A way made possible by Jesus Christ. When the road gets tough, are you seeking out God in prayer? Are you setting your minds on the richness of Jesus Christ? For the Christian, these are the ways in which God has ordained for us to move forward together. God's people can successfully traverse the road of life because of who Jesus is and what he has done. God's people can successfully traverse the road of life because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you loved us enough to save us. We thank you that you you loved us so much that you didn't just save us and leave us as we were, but you promised to transform us into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray today that you would help us to cling to him, to hold fast to those things we know about him and you, and also that our hearts would respond to the command to seek you in prayer in all things. We pray that you would guide us this week, that you would use us to glorify yourself, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.